Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for checking out this podcast series where we've paired up with our friends at the television show Guiding Flow to share guests and continue the conversations and discussions that happen on each episode. You can watch this episode by heading to Waypoint TV or by checking out this blog post at captainscollective.com. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, Turtle Box Audio, Costa Sunglasses, Traeger Grills, and Orvis Fly Fishing. For today's guest, Hillary Hutchinson, exploring water has moved from a childhood passion to a lifelong pursuit. From journalism to television to guiding, Hillary has dedicated her life to helping people understand this amazing resource. In this podcast, Hillary and I discuss her childhood exploring the lakes and streams of Montana, her background in reporting and journalism, and why she chose to enter the fight for Florida's iconic Mosquito Lagoon, over a thousand miles away from where she calls home. Hillary is an incredible angler and a respected leader in the industry, and more importantly, she's a great person who has helped many others through sharing her thoughts and experiences, myself included. We hope that you enjoy this episode. To learn more about how you can join the fight, make sure to head to captainscollective.com. Thank you for listening. This is The Captain's Collective. Hey, Hillary, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast and had a fun day here in New Smyrna yes. Beach and uh, really glad that, that you could come in and be a part of this collaboration with Guiding Flow. And I'm excited to talk more about that. But before you have an interesting story about how you first discovered fly fishing, I'd love just to hear about how you and your sister got into it back yeah. when you were kids. Yeah, I don't think we ever thought it was very interesting, you know, at the time. So it's weird to talk about now because everybody kind of likes to look back at their stories and maybe find something interesting in it. But it's it was pretty basic in that we were just hanging out at the river a lot um, because we grew up on the Middle Fork and the North Fork of the Flathead up in Northwest Montana. And um, my dad was head of natural resources management in Glacier National Park. Um, and so we spent a ton of time in the park. So we grew up right there just outside West Glacier. And uh, my parents always put us on this leaky inflatable kayak and we'd go up <laughs> to the park with my dad and he'd like drop us off in the lake, mm -hmm. Lake McDonald. And so I think he thought we were like paddling around the lake the whole time, but mm -hmm. the lake goes into Lower McDonald Creek, which goes into the Middle Fork, the Flathead. And so we, we would end up floating Lower McDonald Creek and then start floating the Flathead and then either hike all the way back or hitchhike back or, you know, wave somebody down for a ride or something and make sure that we got back to the lake by the time he got off of work uh -huh. so that he would think we were just like paddling <laughs> around the lake. Yeah. So the main way I got into fly fishing was just by reading water and being river proficient at a mm -hmm. really young age. We started doing that probably fifth grade, sixth grade on our own, but we always wore life jackets because we were like, if we drown or have to go to the hospital we're in huge trouble mm. we're dead or we're like never yeah. going to get to do this ever again that's pretty smart for a fifth grader yeah well <laughs> my parent it was my parents actually like were very very big on letting us my sister and my brother my brother's seven years younger than i be on the loose they were really mm -hmm. big on the kind of parenting at large and just but they were like if something happens to you guys it's on us so we're going to provide you with helmets life jackets mm -hmm. so we were the kids like first kids really I knew because I was kind of embarrassed about it in the beginning of wearing, um, you know, helmets mm -hmm. riding our bikes and helmet skiing and everything. But we got to go do all this cool stuff, mm -hmm. you know, so we were psyched on just the freedom of it. Mm -hmm. And same thing with the life jackets and, and learning how to do it. Like my parents taught us how to do stuff and then they just let us go for it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so we would paddle down the creek and then, um, get into the river and run rivers. So we were running, 
you know, the river is a lot and just reading water and figuring it out. And I think reading water for me is the biggest part of fly fishing for sure. Mm-hmm. In terms of the skill part of it, you know, in terms of like how to do it, um, understanding how to get a drift, understanding where your body belongs on the river to so how you can position your boat, um, what the fish are doing, why mm-hmm. they're doing it, how they're holding in pockets, why they're in runs or riffles or why they're in pools, what they're doing at different times a year. All that was from being on the water. Mm-hmm. So floating for sure. What, what was the first piece of the puzzle that you remember figuring out as a kid? Cause you know, when you're, when you're that young, I mean, it could, I could see a lot of people getting overwhelmed. Do you remember a moment where you, you realized something about reading water that was kind of the first piece of the puzzle that fell in place for you? Uh, a couple things. Um, so way back in the day, like in the eighties, the dam, um, that's downriver, not in those upper stretches that are, um, that I'm talking about floating just outside of West mm-hmm. Glacier, but closer to town in the town I live in Columbia Falls, there's the, a, a dam on the South Fork of the Flathead. And so there's a tailwater that comes out of that, that used to run really warm and mm-hmm. they don't release, you know, from the top of the dam like that anymore. They release from the bottom, and so the river's nice and cool all the time. But it used to be at points in the 80s where my sister and I would get into the water, and we could float um, in our life jackets on our bellies for miles because it was mm-hmm. so warm, and it was really unhealthy for that kind of short amount of time. I should look into exactly, you know, kind of how mm-hmm. warm it was and what was going on. But um, we couldn't see a lot of fish, and we'd have goggles on, and we heard that the fishing was like not very good because the river was so warm. Mm-hmm. And then when we'd go upriver and we'd be able to float it, we could see where the fish were, but it was so cold we couldn't put our heads in really for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, And so it struck me that different water temperatures and different stretches mm-hmm. can be affected by different things that we do as humans. Yeah. And so that just got, I was super curious child. So that just got me super curious about what we're doing on it. What, how, how much fun can I have here yeah. and why? And like, where can I go big and how can I have a good time and like kids stuff like that. But then also like, why is it like that? So I think just, um, feeling the different temperatures of the river for weird mm-hmm. reasons is one of the ways that the things that struck me. And I think another thing was just being in the water, like, mm-hmm. um, being in it, floating it. I was always float like I, you know, so cold, we didn't like swim a lot. We were just mm-hmm. always floating, floating on anything we could find. And then, so we, you know, became really boat proficient at a mm-hmm. pretty young age. We started being raft guides. My sister and I were raft guides through high school. And then, uh, the movie river runs through it came out and then everybody wanted to fly fish. And fortunately we could fly fish. I mean, not, <laughs> we weren't guides. So like we weren't fishing guides when we became fishing guides because mm. it was because of that damn movie. You know, it was because we could run rivers. Yeah. So we could get people down the whitewater stretch safely. We could get people down any of the stretches safely. Um, and we, we realized we could put them on fish because mm. we could catch eddies, because we could understand how to slow down the boat. We could understand how to um, catch different riffles and rapids and drifts and, like, you know, maneuver them into position to catch fish. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge um, competitive edge for sure. Yeah, and I think it's really cool hearing about. So both your parents worked for the Park mm-hmm. Service. Yep, my mom, um, my mom, was a forester and botanist at Mount Rainier and Crater Lake mm-hmm. National Park, and then didn't work in the Park Service at Crater Lake or at Glacier National Park when we moved there. And my dad was a wildlife manager and then um, natural resources manager. 
And so obviously you mentioned earlier that they would let you guys kind of, as long as you were wearing a helmet, wearing a life jacket, run free, run safe. And in what other ways do you feel like them having that connection to the environment shaped you as a future guide and angler? Well, I mean, it's pretty basic, but they told us like, we can go out and be on the loose, but you can't pass go unless you commit to the resource first. Mm. I mean, they told us that from like, we thought everybody's parents told them that. And I still want to believe that, that everybody's Mm -hmm. parents tell their kids that, that, um, we're so lucky, especially with as much public land as we have in Montana and, um, to be able and send it out there, you know, just go for it. That's, that's what my parents were all about. They were just like, get after it and go for it. But you don't get to unless you first commit to the resource. And committing mm. to the resource means everything from making your own footprint out there mm. as small as possible to helping others understand how to do that and then also helping influence the people who make the laws. Mm-hmm. I mean, we knew that before we could vote. That like, oh, somebody's in charge of this. There are managers who are in charge of this. Mm-hmm. And who's in charge of them? Well, the people get to have a say. And my parents were very big on that process. Yeah. Fast forward to where you are today as a parent and you're getting to, you know, bring children up and you want them to fall in love with the resource. One of the things I was kind of curious about, too, you know, you had mentioned when you're young and you were floating around, you realize temperature were affecting fish and then piecing together that people are connected to controlling certain aspects that impact the environment. How, as a parent, have you tried to think through, you want to educate your kids, but you also want to keep some level of innocence while they're young or Mm -hmm. allow them to maybe sequentially learn. And so that's not just like, okay, now that you're four, you need to understand, Mm -hmm. but everything's falling apart. You know, how how have you tried to think through that with, with them? Well, one of the things that I believe is that nature does a very good job of leaving breadcrumbs and also pointing you toward the truths, you know, um, itself, like, I've never really felt like I need to be on a big soapbox. I don't guide like that when I'm in my boat. I don't, you know, make everybody sit down and listen to me and let me just tell you Mm -hmm. what's what. Um, Nature does that itself. Mm -hmm. Like people can't look around where I live and um, not ask questions. You know, they want to know why we have so many fewer glaciers than the last time they came here. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, they want to know why that there's this, you know, kind of Didymo looking stuff floating down the river. They've seen Didymo in other parts of the country and they ask about it. Is that what this is? And, and, um, then they, they say, Oh, maybe like the fishing was different when they were here before, or, um, it's different from where they live. There's so many different questions and the, uh, people who come fishing with me more than ever, I think are so sophisticated in terms of asking, all of these questions. And I think that's, I think that's like, that's super fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love that, but it's not me telling them, you know, leading them down that road necessarily. It's Mm -hmm. the fact that we're out there and they get to ask those questions because they can see it or feel it or taste it or smell Mm -hmm. it or whatever their senses are doing when, when we're on the river. Um, nature leads them to that. Yeah. So, so what are ways that you try to connect your clients and of course your kids as well, your family, your friends, when, when you're trying to connect people to nature, what are things that you try to do to help that? Because I Mm -hmm. think that since you, since you were a kid to where we are today, there's a lot of obstacles that maybe have, you know, really grown over the past Mm -hmm. 10, 20 years. How have you tried to work through that? Well, I don't think I, I have to have a role in connecting people with nature. I think that if they're out there, it's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just get out there, then you're connected because you do have a role in it. It's not mm-hmm. always positive. It's not always negative, but there's some sort of role. There's something that's happening that you're affecting mm-hmm. um, and being affected by 
your environment. So just being out there offers a connection. And if people can identify whether they have, you know, a positive influence on it or a negative influence on it, then then one way or another, they're going to be looking for answers. And hopefully if they have questions, um, I might have some personal experience that can help work through that, Mm -hmm. or I can find the people who do. So if they have questions um, about their personal experience in the outdoors or like their connection to being part of the solution, Mm -hmm. how can they help some sort of natural resource problem in their area or in mine? Um, I like to be ready with good, accurate information to lead them in the right direction or um, point them to somebody who is far smarter than I um, or just give them my personal experience, which you know, sometimes I'm, I may not, I, I definitely, a lot mm-hmm. of times don't know, but uh, I want to try to at least help be a conduit. Yeah. For, for you, was there ever a time where you considered not guiding or from a very early age? Oh yeah. I've quit guiding lots of times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lots of times. Like my guide's license is actually pretty high um, because I've quit. Like if you, you don't guide for two years mm-hmm. in a row, you know, it, your number basically starts over and there's been several times I've quit for more than two years. Yeah. And I think that I don't, I don't think I ever didn't like it. I know I mm-hmm. always liked it. Um, but I don't think guiding is always great for you at all points in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, if you love it, it'll, I think always be there. And that's why, um, it scares me that it's not always there the way it, you know, it mm-hmm. might've been before. So I think there's sometimes a desperation right now to just like be in it every day and enjoy it every day. And I just have to remember, um, you know, if you're making a hopeful, positive impact on it, then you're helping to have it be there as you want it to be. But yeah, I've quit a, a bunch of times and kept coming back. I, like I said, I always loved it and it quit cause I didn't like it, but it's not always the right thing at all mm-hmm. different points in your life. When you were feeling that, like what's going through your mind when you're trying to decide, is this something that I want to keep doing or yeah. I want to walk away, step away for a moment? Like, how does that thought process work for you? I'm way more thoughtful now because I'm old. Yeah. But like back then, like I didn't, you know, you know, I'm like, oh, I try this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to, yeah. you know, I'm going to go be an embedded meth reporter, which I did for a long time. <laughs> like I covered meth in Portland, yeah, Oregon we, for, for a okay, long we, time. Let's note that. Let's <laughs> circle back to that for it's sure. It's true. I definitely learned how to make what I imagined was really good meth. <laughs> but it it might have been crap meth. I yeah. don't know. But yeah. Um, it, hopefully no, one I do knows. know, I do know how to make it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's not a skill. I feel like it's useful in anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But, but, but you, you mentioned the journalism piece because that was one of the things I was, I was curious about because I knew that you did some journalism early on and could you just tell us a little bit about that time? And I'm curious how maybe that has impacted the way that you kind of engage in the outdoor world now. Yeah. Well, my degree is broadcast journalism um, from the University of Montana, and I uh, the first thing I ever did was I made a documentary for PBS on um, the Anaconda Copper Mining Company, and um, that's you know in Butte, Montana, Butte, mm-hmm. America, and uh, it won a student Emmy, and it got me psyched on kind of learning about um, the science of Montana, mm-hmm. you know, um, which was epic. Like it's. The Butte story, the legacy is just all these crazy things that happen that affect the rest of the country, like yellow journalism, for example, and just the Copper King's um, hold on pretty much everything that was important. So Mm -hmm. um, from then I went on to be a news anchor in Portland, Oregon, and a news reporter in Portland, Oregon. So I anchored the weekends, and then um, during the week, 
like I said, I chased tweakers mostly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was, I did like... That sounds uh, like a good time. That yeah. and American Idol, which is basically the same thing. So like... <laughs> you were covered, on American Idol? No, or I was a reporter American, covering okay, okay. American Idol. So I did the... I was, I was at like... Um, I was at a weird station at a weird time. So I was at the Fox affiliate in Portland mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of the war. So it was like when people thought like I worked next to Rupert Murdoch or something like that. And so mm-hmm. there were all these protests happening. And so my first 10 days at this TV station in Portland was when we uh, went we went in Afghanistan. And so yeah. suddenly we were like, um, I was had a live a reporter with a live news stinger on his back. And so we were reporting live from these protests. Mm-hmm. My first 10 days and I got pepper sprayed and like Billy wow. clubbed and like tackled and like, just my, for trying to talk about American Idol? <laughs> no, we haven't oh. gotten to the American Idol. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. This was the war, so I'm covering yeah. the war. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's covering the war in Portland, and it was crazy, and but it was really uh, important and interesting, and, mm-hmm. you know, I was young and learning a lot. And then, but it could be, like, the next day, suddenly we're covering the American Idol winners and, yeah. you know, Thursday night or whatever, and the next day, then I'm learning how to make meth, and then suddenly, like, Janet Jackson has her nip slip, and then... <laughs> And then the Pope died. I killed the Pope. Actually, it was the most horrible thing. So, like, when the Pope is set to pass away, rest in peace, the the, the, um, smoke color changes. You know this? And to to tell the people that he's passed away. So it changes from gray to white or white to gray. Come on, Catholics in the room. Changes from gray to white or white to gray. I can't remember now, but... This, the color of the smoke that is, you know, yeah. coming off from where he's laid to rest is changing. And um, I, like, thought I saw the color change. Mm-hmm. And so I announced that he died a solid 15 minutes before he wow. died. Yeah. I should have been fired on the spot. It was, it was or horrible. Or you broke the story. You know, I mean, he ultimately died. Yeah. So I guess you could <laughs> say it that way. But yeah, it was, yeah. like, very horrible. It was, like, the wor- a, a low point. And then... Um, and then things always happen in threes. And then, like, you know, there was the Katrina happened, and that was kind of epic. And like I said, Janet, Janet Jackson had her nip slip, things like, like all these weird memories, like yeah. Alice in Wonderland come, like, from that reporter time. But kind of in the middle of it, I had these opportunities to do stories that I like to do, which mm-hmm. was the outdoor stuff, which was super fun, like covering wildfires in, like, Sisters, Oregon. Mm-hmm. I was really loved doing that. And, um, and, having just like the city with all of its resources um, was a great learning time for me to be able to figure out, you know, kind of what stories I wanted to tell. So um, once I decided I needed to kind of get back into guiding and stuff, I uh, started a PR agency and did that for about 10 years. So we Mm. did PR and marketing for ski companies and for fishing companies. So I did that for 10 years. It was called Outside Media. That's where the outside Hillary comes from. I don't yeah. I didn't name myself that because I like to be outside. It was because that was the name of my company. Yeah, I so. need to start asking all <laughs> the guests like about their because some people have some pretty interesting. Yeah. it's not. It's by far not the most wild out there one. But so you you go into PR, you're doing. You're still you know researching, writing, involved in that world. Yeah. I would imagine there'd be a lot of carryovers from journalism into fishing and in yeah. the outdoor life. What are some of those? Well, um, so I, I started hosting a TV show called Trout TV. I hosted it for several years and then became co-owner of it and mm-hmm. um, had that show for almost a decade. And so I got to write the show, you know, mm-hmm. um, produce the show and stuff like that. 
which is super fun. And then um, the the kind of PR that I was doing was based on news, my news mm -hmm. experience. So it was like lots and lots of um, technical writing, mm -hmm. um, you know, as opposed to more kind of emotional writing, which I love doing. I enjoy it, but it, it's not quite as like there's not as much passion in it as if yeah. you were to kind of write your own stories. So um, I became an editor of Fly Fisherman magazine, um, mm -hmm. the first female contributing editor of the magazine, which I still do today. So I um, write mostly conservation stories. Mm -hmm. So um, my most recent one was about Captains for Clean Water. It was really a profile because a lot of our, um, you know, Western anglers know of captains, but they don't necessarily know all the nitty gritty and they don't understand what big sugar is necessarily mm. and they don't really they kind of know the punchlines but they don't know the specifics so mm -hmm. I got um, super deep into that one and um, and loved it so those my stories for fly fishermen are usually um, you know pretty long full length and in-depth mm -hmm. about some sort of conservation thing that might seem basic but then it gets super deep so the one I've got coming out this month is on the Manhattan issue in um, the Northeast, and uh, that was a super fun one to write because um, I think I compared um, pogies to a, a 1990s teen movie <laughs> where, okay. like, the you know, you think, like, the hottest dude, like the football quarterback yeah. or whatever, is going to get the girl, but actually the most important fish in the sea is bait hmm. and um so it was kind of like comparison, yeah. pogey gets the girl kind of a story so yeah and, and i think that's a huge uh, that's a great point a huge way to relay to people too that just because something small doesn't mean it's not significant yeah. and i think that's to the average person they're just thinking well it's just a little yeah. you know that's but i, I kind of just made a connection so you were talking about when, when you have anglers with you and you're guiding that you try to present information to them as you you can in, in the conversation and in a way, that's a form of journalism with your client on the boat. Mm -hmm. You're going to report to them. You're going to present to them this information. What, what tips would you give on people? Because in a way, every guide and captain should be a journalist to some extent, researching, presenting. What tips yeah. could you give there? Well, first, I think um, this is like a do as I say, not as I do, because I'm terrible at this. But try to take notes and keep that kind of journal, because mm -hmm. um, as we found out today in the lagoon, you can't just go off memory or how things have been because things are changing so often. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many pressures on the fisheries all across our country that you can't just go, oh, this time of year is when this happens. Mm -hmm. It changes so often and, and month to month, it's always different. So trying to take copious notes about just um, how the fish are acting, reacting in different environments and different conditions um, in, in your zone when you think you know inside and out, mm -hmm. um, I think is, is super helpful. And then being able to talk about that. So whether it's something, I think, um, I think there can be good journalism and social media. I think, mm -hmm. you know, um, you, you have to really pick and choose and be very wary about what you're seeing and believing and, um, be able to care about attribution. That's a huge part of it. So mm -hmm. as a guide, if you're thinking of guiding as having a, being storytelling, which I do, um, attribution is huge. It's not just what I say. It's kind of where I learned it. Mm -hmm. So your attribution is where do you get this information? You know, so I really want it to all be backed up by science because mm -hmm. like I said, those are the, the smart ones. I can try to hopefully translate some and, um, and speak to it. But, um, Attribution's huge. Storytelling, I think one of the things, um, for better or worse, that I do 
is kind of animated slash exaggerated storytelling. Mm -hmm. So always keeping it fun, keeping it light. There may be a, a couple little truths stretched here and there, but I think that we, you know, people tend to like get so fired up and take themselves so seriously. We have to keep some of the whimsy and the magic and the goofiness in our, in our stories, you know, I mean, I like to tell, yeah. I like to tell the stories about the craziness that happens out there and there's lots of craziness. So people have heard all the, all my poop stories from the river and, <laughs> you know, all kinds of stuff. And like most of it's true. <laughs> most of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's all true. It's all true. Unfortunately, I hear a lot of people go, Oh my gosh, please tell me your sister did not get covered yeah. in an entire groover full of Jersey shit. Yeah, it's true. She did. <laughs> All right, we need to circle back to that too. We got a long list of circle backs, but I, you you know you speak to something that has come up on this podcast a lot, which is just people dealing with the balance of, you know, this is a serious issue, but we want to have humor and we want to be able to be relatable and you know have fun. Local issues to what what should be global? What should we be pushing out to every single person in the world? And then what stuff should we really be trying to really focus on on local levels? I mean, there's all sorts of different tensions and balances that people go through when they're trying to figure it out. And I think, you know, it kind of reminds me too a little bit of what you're talking about. One moment, it's this story, then it's mm -hmm. this story, then it's this story. That's to me yeah. how it feels a lot of times. Like it seems like every day there's yeah. somebody that sends me something that this is happening in this state and this is happening in this river and this lake. And it can be over overwhelming really. Mm -hmm. Like what is the information that's, you know, that you feel like what's the most important thing for me to try to push out now mm -hmm. to you as you're pretty connected through travel, through all the different projects that you've done. How do you also try to process, you know, all that's happening mm -hmm. and try to dwindle it down? And is there a journalistic systematic method of that or, or no? Yeah. I don't know if it's a journalistic systematic method, but something that has worked for me recently because I have felt that a lot mm -hmm. in the last several years, just exactly like you described one thing after another, um, is first realizing that, um, it's, it's okay if you and I personally can't fix this thing right mm -hmm. now, as long as we're engaged in talking about it. And what I have found that's helpful is, um, I know people and I care about people here who are working mm -hmm. on the Everglades issue. I know people and I care about people and trust people who are working on no pebble. I know about, um, I know people and care about people who are working on the Menhaden issue. You know, I know people who are working on, um, Klamath dam removal, you know, I, mm -hmm. and so I, in the fly fishing community, um, if we're insular, if we think about just like our own zones, um, that can be comfortable, um, because we can just focus on that. And then you start to branch out and you start to get freaked out. But I think it's okay to zero back in on your zone mm -hmm. as long as you, um, have faith and confidence in the people like yourselves who are out there because now all you have to do is go and talk to them. Mm -hmm. Now you have to ask them what they need from you. So what I try to do is like, um, down here, if I can connect with captains for clean water and say, what message can I take back home? It doesn't mm -hmm. mean that I need to actually like, um, be the one single handedly fighting for this mm -hmm. one issue in Florida or this one issue up in um, the Northeast or this one issue in Texas or something. Cause that's not possible. And you also like will grow f incredibly fatigued if you're constantly spinning your wheels. Mm -hmm. um, I can just connect with them and say, I know you're doing this fight. What can I do to help you? Maybe it's something that um, it's a letter, um, maybe, but they'll direct you. Maybe it's something that is just um, telling five friends. Maybe it's something that um, is listening to a testimony that can help 
um, with voter energy. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's a few bucks here and there, you know, for a, for a fundraising campaign. But they'll tell you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do all of the above all the time. And um, as long as you're engaged and you're listening and you're staying connected to your friends in the fly fishing community who are keyed in on these things, then, you, then you're making a difference, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to do it all. There's no way you can do it all. Are you yeah. kidding? Because it's going to... It's going to take like the point out of it because you're just going to be freaking freaked out the whole mm-hmm. time, you know? So. Yeah, that, that's a great point, too, because I, I feel that sometimes, too, where it's almost like when you were a kid and I have a, I have a four year old. So, you know, going through this and you go in your room and your room is just totally so messy and your little, you know, four year old brain is like, I this well, where do I even right, start? So. so you don't do anything. Yeah, and I, think I, a lot well, of I have eighteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old who are basically four. Yeah, so <laughs> carry on. And hopefully, don't listen to podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, they're used to me teasing them like that. Yeah, no, but I think that's probably a, a pretty common issue because it seems to me like the people who care care a lot. They want to talk about it. They want to listen yeah. to it. And then a lot of people, they just are over. I think overwhelmed. Like mm-hmm. I don't think they would say, "I don't care. I don't care what happens." Mm-hmm. I just think that they're just they feel so bombarded, so surrounded by it that often they don't even know what the next step is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why I think like it might feel scary to break out of your own zone. Mm -hmm. Um, that doesn't mean you have to go and fight the big fight in a whole bunch of other zones, but if you can connect with the people who are and hear their story, if you're in Northwest Montana and you can connect with, um, captains for clean water, or if you can at least read the information or just kind of see Mm -hmm. what they're doing, um, you can reach out super easy to just reach out and say, is, is there anything that Mm -hmm. you need from me? You don't have to come up with all those answers yourself. Mm -hmm. That's what they're doing. They're working on it. Like the guy's working on Menhaden issue. You know, I call my friend Abby, um, who, who's a, um, striper guide. And I just say, what can I do? What do you need? Like, mm-hmm. what can I do for you? And it might be, she's like, Oh, I'm going to send you some stickers or something simple like yeah. that, you know? Um, but just being connected with them and talking with them, like what's going on in, on the Texas coast, what's going on in California. Um, you know, just that you see when they send up the, like the bat signal, Mm-hmm. You see that, like you see it through social media when somebody in a different zone sends up the bat signal and they're calling the troops, you know, mm-hmm. that's when you step up and you're like ready to go. It doesn't mean that you need to lose sleep every single night and every single issue. Um, but when the bat signal goes up, like you be ready, mm-hmm. you know, you'll be ready to step up and say, I got you. Yeah. So let's talk about the bat signal that is up while we're all here today. So we're recording today after day one of filming with Guiding Flow. Mm. And for you, you know, this is a long trip. This is a couple of days being here with the crew and being surrounded by a bunch of rough, messy guys. <laughs> <laughs> and um, no, I mean, it, you know, there's you, you've made a big sacrifice to be here and to be a part of this project with, with Benny and the team. I would love to hear about one, just how you got connected to to this filming project that's happening. But then also I'd love to just to hear about what, what are your thoughts with all that in mind after spending a day on the water? Hmm. Well, I think that I, you know, it, I've been guiding for a long time. And so, um, I have already had that mentality that we are all connected as guides. It doesn't, you know, geographically we can be as far away as Montana to Florida, you know, on the map, but, um, we kind of are dealing with the same types of, of mm-hmm. issues, challenges, and joys um, through guiding. And so I do feel connected to guides from all over the country. I, I feel like we're all kind of going through the same thing. And, and um, so I've always been confident just to, to, to ask them questions and connect mm-hmm. with them. 
And, um, you know, for many, many years, it might have been something as simple as, oh, I, I have clients who have come from Florida and um, have told me some sort of challenge that they're having in their fishery. And then, um, you know, I could I would just look up a guide to ask, hey, these people asked me this or told me this or whatever. I mean, that, that probably is part of the journalistic part, like, mm -hmm. you know, kind of investigative. But I would always ask. But um, trade shows, I always like um, would go to the seminars that had nothing to do with my zone. So I would go listen to a Menhaden seminar mm -hmm. at ICAST trade show or go listen to one about um, Everglades restoration, you know, just because it's like, well, I care about water. I care about fish. I care about, you know, guides in their business and their anglers. And mm -hmm. I don't know what this is. And that's really embarrassing. Like mm -hmm. if I didn't know, you know, what their issues are, I'm like, well, if we're so close and connected, how do I not even know how to speak their language in the, in this particular issue? Mm -hmm. So it was important for me to understand that and then the other thing is like I loved fish so mm -hmm. if I wanted to go fishing anywhere across the country what I didn't want to do is show up and not understand that fishery so one of the things you know um I'm I'm not going to complain about clients like mm -hmm. ever I don't really have complaints about them but one thing that um does kind of um frustrate frustrate me a little is like if somebody shows up and they don't know where they are mm -hmm. you know I'm like, you're at the crown of the continent, pal. <laughs> like, <laughs> what are you telling me you don't know where you are? Like, you know, they literally don't know that they're um, in an intact ecosystem or that they're floating on glacial runoff or that, you know, those things are the things that are mm -hmm. special to me. I'm like, this is where your native West Slope cutthroat are. We have bull trout here. Mm -hmm. Like, it, you know, when they show up and they just don't know where they are. So I don't want to be like that. Like, um, I don't want to just go fishing. You know, mm -hmm. I want to go fishing in a place that is unique to that zone for whatever reason. And I mm -hmm. want to know why the guides want to be there, mm -hmm. why they care about it. Um, what, what stokes them out? Like, um, and so I try to learn about that a little bit. So when I get on a boat, then I can feel it. I can like understand their passion. I can, you know, see what's, yeah. what's going on there. So when I first kind of started coming down here during ICAST trade shows, um, I went with a guide, I think the first year, who was super bummed out about the lagoon. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand why. And um, he was, he, he, I don't think trusted me enough to really tell me why. Mm -hmm. You know, that could jeopardize a tip if he's like super grumpy about it or something. Mm -hmm. he, he maybe thought, um, but he ultimately stopped guiding. I think just because it, it looked like a dire situation, you know. Mm -hmm. And I didn't under, he never got to the point of like really explaining to me the science behind what was happening in um, Mosquito Lagoon. So um, the next year I came back and I got to go with Captain Justin Price and I retained the questions I had from the year before with this mm -hmm. other guide. And I asked him all the questions and he, um, he didn't just answer all those questions. He like brought me into the conversation and he mm -hmm. was telling me about meetings that were being had. And he was talking about other guides in the area who are collaborating on having these discussions and like the things that they were seeing and how they were having to, um, you know, go to different zones and like try and figure it out. And he was just kind of telling, and, and that was like speaking my language because those are the kinds of things that I would do at home to figure out what's going on with my mm -hmm. fishery. And, um, that was super helpful just in being, I, I was like, okay, this is like a guide who is asking other people question you know mm -hmm. questions he has and getting answers and um and I didn't expect him to have all the answers but he was interested in working through it with me so um that's how I kind of got started coming down here because then after that like um 
I would fish with other friends. Um, my sister and I got to fish with Justin. My partner Evan and I got to fish with Justin. My buddy Jake and I got to fish with another guy mm-hmm. down here. We just like kind of kept going and and kept learning. And um, same thing all across the country. Anywhere I go, like that's kind of the attitude that I want to have. Is that yeah, want to catch fish for sure. Like mm-hmm. people who say they don't care about catching fish, I think are full of shit. They they do yeah. want to catch fish. You yeah. know, I do, and I love fishing. And um, but uh, while you're there. You know, I think it's important to absorb as much as you can. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll help your fishing everywhere else you go. Yeah. And, and, you know, having previous experience fishing here and having a relationship with Justin, who's yeah. here right now as we record, you know, you come into today and you're, you're a part of this project with Guiding Flow. And it's, it's different because you're trying to show people, here's the, the water quality issues that are happening here. Here's how beautiful and how special, you know, I, I thought... Mm-hmm. You put it really well that like, you know, you go to all these different zones, everything has something that makes them special. And that still is true about Mosquito Lagoon. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's still some just incredible things here and beautiful, beautiful place, great people. What are you hoping that as people watch this, what are you hoping they take away? You know, I, I hope that um, it, it's easy to get bummed out for sure. Like, um, and I hope that people can sense the hope and the positivity that is still very thick in, mm-hmm. in this community. I think it's easy to get bummed out, but God, the, the guides and, and um, friends who I've met down here uh, love this place and mm-hmm. are so hopeful for it and working really hard for it. And um, I think they're starting to learn that they have a, a whole community of anglers all across mm-hmm. the country outside of the zone who have their back. And I hope that that helps with that hope. And I hope that that, mm. um, helps with that fight that's like, you're not just alone. It's not just, you know, um, the guides who are here just in this actual zone. It's that it's, you've got an entire community of, of like-minded guides and, and clients and anglers all across the country who are willing to help you mm-hmm. with, with this issue, just say what you need. So, um, yeah, I, I think, um, th- what I love about this place coming down here is that, even though it's so different from me working in the mountains and the rivers, it's super wild. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's gnarly in the, in mm-hmm. gorgeous. And, um, the, there's things that like, um, amaze me every single day, even though I it keep coming back, I see something new, like the wildlife here is incredible, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's something different that I see or learn or every single time. I mean, I get lost, you know, look, I have no Mm -hmm. sense of direction back there and we're ripping around and it's just like so different from home and so beautiful. And it Mm -hmm. makes, it it does freak me out and bum me out that, um, that my friends who are guiding here are so concerned. So I think that what I hope people take away is that, um, the people who live here, play here, work here, um, are working really hard and we have the opportunity to have their back. Mm Mm-hmm. Any um, fun day one filming stories? Any poop stories, as you mentioned earlier? Um, not, I didn't. I didn't have any personal and nothing to share here. Uh, I can pass the mic on that because I don't know. I'm not sure anywhere else. I mean, you guys have those damn sea cucumbers that come floating by and freak me the heck out all the time. I'm like, who did that? <laughs> I think it's a sea cucumber. Yeah. I don't know what that is. Um, but no, no. Nope. Justin smiling like it's not. <laughs> it's not a sea cucumber. <laughs> what is floating in your water? Um, no, nothing like that. Uh, let's see. What were some C 
see if there was or, any crazy or any, stories. Any, any moments where, you know, something lit up in you just being back in the space? I mean. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I love um, about fishing here is uh, different ways to read the water. So, um, so just understanding the wind today was a really big deal because, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was a north wind coming in yesterday and then we had the southeast wind coming in that was like pushing the algal bloom up. So there was making dirty water and um, and we're hoping that like the wind switches again tomorrow. So from the north and it'll push that dirty water back down. And so like as guides are talking about that, like I'm like trying to pay attention. I'm trying to think about it. And I'm just like, I can't even tell <laughs> which way. <laughs> The wind is blowing and what's doing, you know, so the being able to position the boat in a place where we can have some clear water and also, um, where we don't have the sun working against us, we can try to get a good angle on the cast and, Mm -hmm. um, also try to figure out what the fish are doing, I think was, is super, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It's like, that's exciting. Just that Mm -hmm. part of it is exciting. Even without the fish, you do know we didn't catch fish today, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. We didn't catch any fish today. It was, which actually was brutal because um justin put us on a lot of fish yeah yeah that's i heard yeah okay <laughs> yeah he he did you know but like I, i've always been told that you know there's the guide's got to do his job anglers got to do her job and then mm-hmm. the damn fish have to do their job too so yeah you know there's a lot of factors yeah. in there but <laughs> yeah i agree with you i think one of the things that's really special about this place is how technical and dynamic it really is like yeah. there's just there's from you know all the different nooks and crannies you can get into and escape from wind. And I think that's one of the things too, like as I've got to know guys in this area, I've been really impressed. Maybe, you know, while there's a lot of challenges they're facing, just impressed with one, their dedication to their fishery. Mm-hmm. Cause it, it would be easy just to pack up and leave, mm-hmm. but they're trying to fight for it. And, and they're also trying to provide for their families mm-hmm. and they're trying to, you know, build businesses. But then also like how they have continued to to scratch it out and work hard to learn the fishery, to keep up with what's happening and to, to work around it. So I think it's really fun and, and I'm excited just to see, uh, you know, how tomorrow goes and, yeah. and everything. Um, you excited to see if we catch fish. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was just no psyched pressure on that on you. twerking manatee. We saw this twerking man- manatee. Oh my gosh. We saw this. Well, man- see, I just, I just asked if there were any crazy stories. You missed the twerking I don't know how manatee. Crazy. I mean, don't all the manatees here twerk. Like how else are they going to move their junk? Yeah, like that's, that's a lot true. of junk to, so that they do let, you know, I yeah. don't know a lot about manatees. I know they're pretty controversial because there's far too many, which also has to do with seagrass, which also has to do with the temperature, which is all these things that I'm learning that it's just, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many intricate pieces of, of this, but the manatee today that, that twerked its face off was mm-hmm. super impressive. Like it just did like the worm, but you know, yeah. it was mostly it had, it was ass. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was laughing at everybody on the boats and it was yeah, awesome. Yeah. I don't get it. That's something I don't get to see. So say what you will about the manatees. That was cool. Yeah. You give that one a pass. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Um, so I have some rapid fire questions, but before we get into that, you've mentioned reading water a few times. If you were going to give a crash course on how to read water, what, what, what would you say? So if it's for reading water for fly fishing, I would say, um, back row, back row, back row. Um, give yourself an opportunity to pull away from an obstacle. So mm-hmm. if you're, um, if you're just learning to row, that's the number one thing is point out what you want to get away from and pull. Okay. Any, anything that you noticed today, like you were talking about the wind, but in, in what way, how does that translate? Oh, for reading water skiff? here? Oh, I thought you meant me reading water. So 
Um, for yeah, God. Well, if Justin would ever give me a second chance at polling, <laughs> then I could get some more personal information. But I may have smashed into an island. Um, but when I was when I was polling his boat, um, I learned that you have to plan you have to plan way ahead for setting up your line, just like mm-hmm. on the river. So if there's somewhere you want to go and you're taking the wind and the current um, and the sun and everything into consideration, then you have to set up for it a lot faster than mm-hmm. you think. Because that's something that I didn't really get either. Is that when I look at a river, I say current. You know, you mm-hmm. know that's current, and I could really read that current. When I look out at the lagoon, like I'm not understanding the current, like what's happening under mm-hmm. the water really and um, the different speeds and channels and all of that kind of stuff. And um, so what I kind of found from what I believe is reading water here, mm-hmm. you know, is having to set up pretty early and get yourself set up on a good line and try to hold that line mm-hmm. as best you can, especially when we're like fishing for the reds along the shorelines, you know, just kind of keeping that speed and distance is really similar to being on the river. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Well, if, if you're ready, I'd love to transition into rapid fire questions. Great. No pressure on the rapidity of <laughs> them. If that's, is that a word? I don't You're care. a journalist. No. I'm a creative writing major. <laughs> awesome. It's, it's like journalism with crayons. Yeah. <laughs> I know my daughter's going into um, writing, but she's interested in writing environmental policy. And I was like, that's the technical, that's like technical writing. Yeah. yeah so I'll, I don't know. I'm like, I'll stick that's to impressive. Yeah. magazine. When I was in the creative writing program, I was interested in being on that rate my professor site and being in whatever class was going to be the <laughs> yes. easiest for me to, to get through. But I, I did enjoy it. So, all right, we'll, we'll attempt to do this oh, somewhat rapidly. Okay. But you, you have a tendency of saying things that... We, that I, it's hard to move past and to circle back like you're making meth, you know, there's twerking manatees. Uh, so it might be a challenging for, same, for same. me. It's all yeah, related. Yeah. All right. So one, you, you do a lot of travel. What's your biggest travel pet peeve? Um, I think it used to be uh, bare feet on airplanes. Other people's, you know, oh. yeah, other people's bare feet on airplanes used to be, but like that was pre-COVID, which now I don't have really any complaints about yeah. travel <laughs> at all. You know, we're, we're so lucky to be able to travel in yeah. whatever safe way we can. And I definitely took it for granted, you know, mm-hmm. pre-pandemic. Um, but I can't remember, what is the name of that? There's like an Instagram page that it's like people post all the nasty things that are happen on airplanes, uh. like people clipping their toenails and like um, one girl uh. like put her super long hair over the top <laughs> of the back of somebody else's seat. Oh. Yeah, they put gum in it, so that worked out. But um, and then like you know, bare feet. So uh, other people's bare feet uh, kind of used to bug me, but now I don't have any any I don't have any qualms about travel. I think we're so lucky to be able to do it, and we've learned how that we have to do it responsibly because mm-hmm. you never know what's next. I think that travel is going to change, you know, f- from here on out. Like mm-hmm. you know, whether it's masks or just personal hygiene, washing your hands, just like having respect for other people's space, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. I think um, I think we should be counting our lucky stars. We can travel mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. Um, so I know you're part of an online book club. Is that correct? Well, so I think what you're thinking of is my daughter, it, she runs the book club for the Glacier Conservancy. Yes. And um, so she's in charge of coming up with lists of outdoor-related books. And then um, her, the executive director of the organization 
will like choose one with her and then they they have a book club it's they i mean it's like anybody yeah. you know who cares about like glacier national park so it's a conservancy that basically um you know kind of keeps the culture piece of glacier national park with Very art, cool. art yeah. and writing and that kind of stuff and um so then she does a zoom um you know book club call with them and uh and then she writes the review of the book she writes the book review and it gets published in the paper which yeah, is kind of cool that's so, very cool yeah, yeah. and tech let's be very clear like um i am i am not a great reader and the reason is is because i'm one of those voracious readers who will stay up all night long to mm-hmm. finish something like i can't just read a couple pages i'll stay up all night so um book clubs are challenging because then i'll forget what we were you know, it's like yeah. the meeting and then you forget what we read because I'm like go long times between books because yeah. otherwise I'll never sleep. Yeah. So but I'm supporting her in that. In oh, that very one. cool. Yeah. Because I saw I saw the link. So I just assumed that, that yeah. you were part of it. But that's yeah. really cool. That she's no, it's her. That. Yeah, that's her. She's that's her deal. It's super cool. Their, um, their last book was one about light pollution. Um, they read and uh, which was really interesting and and it talked a lot about environmental justice and just how in a lot of cities um, people's uh, rhythms are off Mm -hmm. because um, they're either working through the night at factories and so they don't have that kind of natural rhythm Mm -hmm. with nature because of light so they never really have the night sky they're sleeping during the day and don't have that's one part of it and that happens in um a lot of uh, places where there's mostly minority communities mm-hmm. that are, you know, working in bigger cities and factory areas and stuff. So the book kind of talks about that. And you wouldn't think about a book about the night sky being mm. about environmental justice. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a good study because I think a lot of us are thinking about how we can positively um, affect our relationship with environmental justice. And um, and that was one that like resonated with me because it's like, mm-hmm. hmm. Nighttime stars, I understand that. It would be really challenging to not have that. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we talked about this before you, you got on the podcast, but could you just kind of help explain to like the environmental justice, the idea kind of behind that, yeah. the responsibility? And yeah, I think, um, you know, we talk about, I talk about a lot of times just living in um, a natural environment that is, he- you know, is healthy. Like we're mm-hmm. taking care of the environment because it's good for it's good for us, but really, um, so much of our neighbors in in our own neighborhoods and in other parts of the world um, are forced to live in environments that are not healthy. And mm-hmm. um, you know, it's part of kind of the systemic racism conversation that we're having is where people have been forced to live or where people have ended up living because mm-hmm. of their situation and um, and how you know we can impact that, how we have impacted that, what our mm-hmm. role is. Um, before now and in the future and um the reason that this you know really resonates with me is because i'm talking about the environment all the time like Mm -hmm. i'm thinking i'm talking we're talking about like how healthy you know we feel and how strong we feel when we can can be in a good environment we think about good environment as mountains and trees and things but Mm -hmm. what if you don't have access to clean drinking water Mm -hmm. Um, what if you don't get to breathe clean air what mm-hmm. if you don't get to be outside and be able to have your your rhythm set up so that you can sleep and eat in this in this pattern that is healthy, um, and and we've kind of established that negative system for a lot of our friends and neighbors all across the country, and I think that's um, one of the places we can look when we talk about being part of the solution for equality is looking at um, solving uh, environmental justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. 
full circle, um, where I was kind of leading to you to, is there a book that you've read over in your life that you felt like was catalytic for you? Do you have a best book? Oh, a best book. Let's see. You know, um, because I'm a kind of reader, I told you about that. I like mm-hmm. read super fast. Um, I, I, ha- I don't, uh, reread a lot of things. So I just finished this awesome book called the outlaw ocean. Have mm-hmm. you read it or no, heard about it yet? So it's about all the crazy shit that happens in the ocean. That's real. It's like pirate stuff happening right now about cruise ships, dumping everything. Like I learned about this, um, they call it the magic, magic pipe. And it's this apparatus that's manufactured and sold to cruise ships that can very quickly dump all the waste, um, into the ocean, like wow. super quick. And then, it, but somebody makes it. It was a thing that boggled, somebody makes money off of it and it's totally yeah. illegal. Yeah. And then also that, um, it had to do with like how, um, some of the Japanese whalers are able to get around, you know, whaling in certain spots. So, and, um, and then it has to do with like human trafficking in the ocean, mm. just like it's the outlaw ocean. And, um, is written by a New York times reporter over four years mm. of going undercover. So I loved the undercover bit because I did all that meth. undercover meth stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, yeah, of course. I dig that. Um, and, but he like full on went undercover on ships that had, human trafficking and, wow. and, and prostitution and like crazy stuff that is happening in, in our time now mm-hmm. it's, and pirating for sure. Um, and drug smuggling and like all of the, these things that, um, are hap- you just don't imagine mm-hmm. that are happening, but they're happening at such a large scale now. And then also from an investigative journalism point of view, like, um, what happens next? Like, how are those things prosecuted? How, where are the fines going? Like, mm-hmm. um, who are the organizations that are fighting against them? Because some of those organizations fighting against them are also having to break the law mega in order to even, mm-hmm. they're, they're going across international waters. That's, that was probably, that's the most fascinating book I've read recently. Yeah. No, I'm sold on it. I also love it. the book Cod. I don't know if you read Cod, but Cod is about cod <laughs> and it's it's about um how civilizations have really been built on this one fish mm-hmm. kind of like like salt same author same author as the book salt which is the same thing like mm. one spice like one commodity has like driven all these civilizations yeah that's um i'll have to check that out sounds really good yeah. sounds interesting Super so. good. the book i'm reading right now that i'm reviewing for fly fisherman magazine is called home waters and it's by john mcclain and it's norman mcclain's son oh very cool yeah. yeah so i got a um a pre you know copy of yeah. it yeah and uh yeah so I'm, i've just started reading that i'm gonna do a review on it i think in the june issue and uh i'm psyched because it's I haven't gotten to this part yet, but mm-hmm. there's allegedly some new information on um, how Paul was murdered. Yeah, wow. from a river runs through it. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah that sounds great. So uh, another question kind of related to that. Um, do you keep a, a fishing journal? Um, kind of, not real, not a good one. Like yeah. I, you know, when I write for myself, it's usually like crazy cryptic poetic shit. So I don't mm-hmm. like... I shove it in a drawer or something, but, um, I keep a calendar. Um, Mm -hmm. and so my calendar is super detailed in terms of like, um, where I went, where I fished that day, what, what the temperature was doing, what the levels were doing, like, Mm -hmm. you know, what we caught, what, you know, so, so it's like bullet points. It's not. Okay. So like on a a Apple calendar, you'll go in and put like, this is what. Mm -hmm. On a Google calendar. Yeah. So I actually write it down because I'm a visual person. So I have like a, um, you know, a calendar book 
like mm-hmm. an old school planner okay. kind of. And that's where I'll jot notes down and then I'll go back in and put it in the Google Calculator. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Because, you know, I've, I've asked over the past three years people about taking notes. Mm-hmm. Nobody's ever had yeah. a confident answer, I would say. Like, I mean, there's definitely people who have s- systems. But I haven't heard anybody say that. It makes a lot of sense, yeah. though. That you can go in I and just write. Yeah, I don't write like the it's like a journal where it's beautifully written. Or yeah, anything. yeah. It's just the bullet points. Yeah, the notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of I think what I was originally getting at was, you know, like people are, you know, they'll they'll do something for a week and then mm-hmm. they'll not do it for three months and they'll just try to go off intuition or memory mm-hmm. or let me think about what was happening last mm-hmm. year. That's a good idea to take a Google Calendar and then just the bullet points, just the big, mm-hmm. the big thing. So it's so easy to scroll back and yep. look at it. Yeah, I started, I started doing that. I mean, at Christmas time every year, somebody gives me a fishing journal, and mm. I try. I really do. Yeah. I really try to like, you know, yeah. really write about it. But the calendar is something that I'm looking at every day anyway, just to see who I'm fishing with the next mm-hmm. day and see if there's anything else going on and so that's the place that that way I know I'll look at it and I know I'll write in it um and that seems to work for me I also like have um had some success in trying to figure out what was happening a year ago just by looking back at Instagram yeah you know look at (laughs) what you know oh the river was really clear that day you know I fished with Deborah and like she caught this big cutthroat and oh there we were on the north fork and like the river was super clear then like oh there's okay there's that much snow in the mountains in that picture so that tells me like that's way more snow than we have this year you know just kind of you're investigating your own yeah you're you're stealing your own spots and info off Instagram I know I'm like (laughs) where was I yeah Yeah, how it works (laughs) That's good. My, my last question, I love to ask this question just to, to different guests, is... Um, I realize my answers have not been very rapid fire. They never been, they okay. never are. It's like a, it's basically a joke at this point okay. that it's called that. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, but my, 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 last, my last question is, um, you know, you've, you've had the opportunity to be around a lot of different guides and fish a lot of different waters. To you, what makes a great guide? Mm. So I think... And, um, definitely an engaged guide makes a great guide. And so when I think about engagement, I think that first they're engaged in their zone. So first they want to be there. Mm-hmm. That's key. It's key that they want to be there and, um, wanting to be there means that they've put some of their soul into learning as much as they can, mm-hmm. knowing as much as they can about it and then putting in the time, you know, mm-hmm. into it for sure. And then, so they're engaged in their environment and then they're going to start to become engaged in like the, the technical aspects of it. So they're going to be as good as they can possibly be at, um, at pulling their boat about driving their boat, getting into uh, putting the boat where it needs to go. Like for me, um, like I told you, reading water and rowing is crucial. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm a short person and I, um, can't rely just on brute strength. And mm-hmm. so I have to, you know, be good at it. Like I have to be really, you know, mm-hmm. skilled at, um, putting the boat where I want it to be for the anglers. So that's that engagement. And then, um, they need to be engaged in what's happening out there. So mm-hmm. you can't like, you just go out, get skunked, throw your hands up in the air and be like, Oh, I don't know what happened. You know, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, come, wish you were here yesterday. Come back next year, whatever. Um, they have to really be engaged in understanding mm-hmm. their fishery, you know, from the inside out and be ready to change with its changes and, and adapt in your learning and not just like blow it off as like, well, that's, that's what it is. That's why like, they call yeah, it fishing. Yeah. That's why I call it fishing. You're holding your mouth wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it should, it should be that they're, um, more interested in taking another step to become more engaged in like mm-hmm. what is actually happening. And then, um, the fourth part, did I say three? I think the fourth part is, um, 
being engaged in the people that they're mm. taking out there. So, um, part of that is like a good guide will, um, understand what the people expect from the day and also tell them what to expect. So mm. what I like to do and, um, and I'm not necessarily putting myself in that category. I'm just saying something that helps me is um, laying out expectations for the day. So that might be, I'll say, all right, we're going to float today from Bear Creek to Essex. This is really dynamic stretch. There's going to be times that I'm going to make sure that you're sitting down. I want you to have your lines mm -hmm. in and hold on. If I say lines in, let's bring the lines in. We don't want to catch a fish there because we don't want to fight them through the rapid. You know, mm -hmm. So things that they might not know would happen mm. on this trip that makes this trip different and unique i tell them that way before it's going to happen and then remind them throughout the trip all right we're coming up to this spot i told you about you know mm -hmm. and um, it's not meant to be condescending it's meant to help lay out expectations yeah. you know so they know what's what the day's going to be like and then i also say stuff like these, these are the fish we're targeting today this is how many river stretch miles we're going to go this is when we're going to eat lunch you know it just puts people at ease because it's something that it's a unique fishery, something they haven't done. Um, I might say something like, you know, this style of fishing we do here is we're going to sight cast this whole mm. river instead of just a spray and pray. You know, you might be used to spray pray for rainbows, different yeah. rivers in Montana. We're not fishing like that. We're going to be sight fishing today, you know, and I think that's helpful to them mm. too. So becoming engaged in um, their day, their expectations, and then listening to them I think is mm -hmm. huge. I, I forgot like probably the, the most fun one to, to think through together. But if you could go back to yourself in the fourth grade, fifth grade with your sister and you're on your belly snorkeling down yeah. the warm water and you got to have a conversation with yourself in that season of life, what, what would you tell yourself? I would probably say, um, you know, Papa knows why. Like my dad's a, you know, my dad's mm -hmm. a natural resources management specialist, but uh, your parents don't know anything when you're that age, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and you don't want to listen to them or assume that they have the answers. But I really wish that I had that time mm. again back when I was in, you know, junior high, elementary school, and in high school to go back and learn those things from my parents. My parents did a really good job about uh, teaching us about adventure. Mm -hmm. And we just never went back and asked kind of the more scientific mm. questions that I became interested in later in life. So, you know, I don't know as a kid if I really would have still been interested, but I would like to go back and like at least tell myself that this is important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, this is something to at least try to pay attention to. And I'm not scientifically mm -hmm. minded, so I get why I didn't because I didn't care about it, you know, yeah. but now I do. Well, that was a really fun conversation. There's a lot of stuff we could do a part two. Um, but I'm sorry. No, no, it was really, <laughs> no, no, that was great. I really appreciate it. And it's been fun getting to hang out with you and the rest of the crew here. Excited for day two of filming. Thank you Same. for being a part of this. Thank and you. Being a part of the no, project. Super fun. Thanks. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks again for listening to the Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective.